All right. Well, hey, great to see you this morning. I'm Glenn Barnes, another one of the pastors here, and um, it is awesome to be together. So, hey, we'll go ahead and dismiss kids to children's church. So grades six and down, we uh, have a special uh, children's church for you. Hey, we've talked a lot already about just how fun Vacation Bible School was around here. It was so cool for me. I had nothing to do with it. I just got to walk around and, you know, see the amazing stuff that is being done. But I was so proud of the teenagers of this church and the volunteers that just did an amazing job. And um, it just reminded me how much I love being a part of this church family. And if I don't say it uh, often or enough, I just uh, love you and love being a part of this church. So, hey, hopefully when you came in, you grabbed some message notes and there's a Bible um, in the chair in front of you if you would like to follow along, although I have things on the screen as well, because we are uh, jumping into this morning's message in a series um, this this summer called We Still Believe. So, uh, but I don't know if you've ever heard the story about the guy who uh, jump, jumps into a taxi cab and he gets into this cab and the driver pulls out into traffic and things are going great until they come to um, the, the first stop, stop sign or stop light actually. And um, the driver just blows right through the intersection. It's a red light, but he doesn't even stop at all. He just bails right through this thing. Um, and the, the passenger is kind of freaked out by this. And he says, hey, what are you doing up there? Are you trying to get us killed? Um, and the driver says, hey, you know, don't worry about it. My brother and I do this all the time. She says, okay, that sounds fine. And so they keep going. A few blocks later, they come to another red light. Same deal. A driver just guns it right through this red light. Now the guy's a little panicked. He says, what are you doing? Are you trying to get us killed? And the guy says, don't worry about it. My brother and I do this all the time. So now he's just a little freaked out, but he's thankful when he comes to the next light, only this time it's a green light, and this time the driver slams the brakes on, comes almost to a complete stop, and then very carefully kind of inches his way through the intersection, looking very cautiously. And the guy says, all right, what is going on? You know, now it's a green light. What are you doing there? And the driver says, well, you never know when my brother might be coming the other way. You see, the deal is that we value life. We place a high value on life, especially when it's our own life. And yet we live in a world where we see that life is less and less valued these days. So as I said, we are in this summer series um, called We Still Believe. And for six weeks, we're going to be looking at six kind of foundational um, statements that are a part of historic Christianity. And yet in our more kind of relativistic culture, we see that more and more these things that have been a part of 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 historic Christianity, people are saying, well, that seems old-fashioned or out of touch or is just no longer true. And I said last week when we started this, our goal is not to be grumpy about these things. Our goal is not to be critical or dismissive of someone who maybe sees it differently or might even disagree with us uh, or disagree with me on these things. Um, But what we want to do is have some honest conversation. Our culture needs places where real conversation can take place these days. And so we want to have honest conversation about sometimes what are controversial uh, topics, um, but we want to do that in a thoughtful, we want to do that in a respectful way, and we want to do that um, uh, from a biblical approach, which is what we said our task here on Sunday morning is really to ask, what does the Bible say about these topics? And so today we are going to jump into the very important topic when it comes to developing kind of a worldview or an outlook on life, which is that we still believe that all life is valuable. All life is valuable. So the question then becomes, well, how valuable 
is life? And that's actually a question, a real question that people have to answer. So everybody from the United States government to insurance companies wrestle with this question, what is the value of human life? So for instance, I read a a 2016 article from New Science uh, publication called What Are You Worth? And I found this, that the U.S. Department of Transportation determined that one life is worth investing up to $6 million to try and protect that life in transportation issues. But the family of a U.S. service person who is killed during action or who dies in active duty receives between $250,000 and $800,000 in compensation um, for that loved one. Maybe you know this, but hadn't thought about it quite like this. So in our legal system, uh, in the case of a wrongful death especially, uh, the legal system says that, that a person, that a state can be paid for, um, for pain and suffering before death, and you can be paid for loss of income or loss of value um, after you die, but you don't actually get anything for the actual life even though they say the estimated value of the human uh, basic elements of the human body is around $118,000. And did you know that the cost of protecting the life of a U.S. president uh, is upward of $300,000 a day? So $300,000 a day to protect the life of the United States president when it, in some parts of the world today, a slave can be purchased. This is actually a 2020 statistic. A slave can be purchased for around $140. In fact, they say that there are 40 million people in some sort of forced labor around the world today in industries that generate $150 billion and that the price tag of a person in a trafficked person in some sort of forced labor is actually lower than it's ever been before. But as I said, what we want to do today is we want to talk about what does the Bible actually say about the value of life. And so we're going to be looking at a lot of scripture. As I said, we'll put all that on the screen. You can also follow along um, in your notes as we talk about what does the Bible say about the value of human life. Sometimes this topic is called the sanctity of life because sanctity means the, the holiness or the sacred nature or the value. What is the sanctity of life? And so we want to start at the very beginning of this. And so when you have any discussion on what the Bible says about human life, you need to acknowledge first and foremost what it says from the very beginning, which is that the Bible teaches that all life is valuable because we are made in the image of God. That's the language that the the scripture uses, that we are made in the image of God. So we're going to start in page one, chapter one, Genesis chapter one, and we'll go ahead and put up there Genesis one, starting in verse 25, and I'll read it all the way through to the end of the chapter. Uh, This is what the story of creation says, Genesis 125. God made the wild animals according to their kinds. God made the the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sky, or fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, 
fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit and seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all of the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made and it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So that's kind of the foundation of this discussion when we talk about life and that all life is valuable because it's in the image of God. So when we say that, we see a few things just right off the bat. We see, first of all, that, that humans are different than the rest of creation, right? The, the animals, the rest of creation are, are extraordinarily valuable, but we see that humanity alone is uniquely created in the image and the likeness of God. So what are a few things that we learn about the image of God? The, I like the, the, the Latin phrase for this, the imago Dei. So when we talk about the imago Dei, what does it mean that I bear the image of God? Um, a few things we see. First of all, that in the imago Dei, it is something that is equally true of men and of women, right? One gender is not superior to the other or over the other. God designed a distinction as well between male and female. And he called that distinction and and then the call to be fruitful and multiply. He said, that is very good. Now, when we talk about the Imago Dei, that we're in the image or likeness of God, most people would clearly agree that that is not a physical thing, right? God is spirit. So it's not talking about physical. So what does it mean then to be in the Imago Dei? And there's a lot of discussion about that. So some say it has to do with things like creativity and uh, it has to do with reason or speech or the ability to self-determine or or self-govern our lives. That's what sets us apart as as unique and as image bearers. Others say the image of God is reflected in a, a desire for moral character or um, in, um, in moral issues like love or honesty or bravery or noble sacrifice or those kind of things. Now, I confess, I've been fascinated with the image of God my whole Christian life. Um, and so you hear a lot of people talk about it. I am actually not 100% convinced that anybody really knows what the Hebrew scriptures teach us about the image of God. I don't think, in, you know, because it's a lot of different things. I think a lot is implied there. So I don't know if, if anyone completely understands all that it means to be in the image of God. But this week I read and I listened to a lot of people way smarter than me. And so a couple words that I want us to think about when we think about this idea that we are image bearers of God. And the two words are this, reflection and representation. Reflection and representation. Because as image bearers of God, we uniquely reflect God's glory to our world. So for instance, when you go out on a clear night and you see the moon up above and the moon is bright and just throwing off all this light, it's beautiful to us and we think that that's amazing, even though we know if we think it all the way through that the moon itself doesn't generate any light. All the moon does is reflect back the light of the sun back to us and it seems really bright. And so when we talk about as image bearers that we are meant to reflect God's glory, that's kind of the idea there. The glory is not about us, but we represent and we reflect back that glory to the world and to one another. Um, So uh, for instance, um, just like 
uh, a mirror can reflect light or reflect the sun and, and cause a spark or cause a fire. So we reflect back God and we can create warmth and light and goodness and all those kind of things because we can reflect God. And that's, that's something that we uniquely do as image bearers of God. We are also uniquely representatives of God right? So it was very common in the ancient world, not necessarily in the Hebrew world, but in the the ancient world in many different cultures, the thinking was that the king or whoever the leader was would represent or would speak for and could govern on behalf of the deity of those people. Now, we don't claim, and the Bible never claims, that we speak for God. That's not the way it works. God reveals himself and speaks himself. But we do see that God gives a responsibility to mankind, right? And that's to govern, and that's to steward, and that's to care, right? There's all that stuff about how you care for the creation, and you subdue, and rule, and all these things. That's one of the reasons why Christians should care about our environment, right? And should care about the world that we, um, that we live in. But as we talk then about the, uh, the image of God, those are some things just kind of at the most basic level um, that it speaks about. What are the implications of this? What does this mean that we are image bearers of God? And again, we're going to start at just kind of the most ba- very basic level. And the first implication that you see in the Bible from beginning to end is that all human life is worthy of respect and honor. All human life is worthy of respect and honor. And here's what's so important. And here's where it's different than the way the culture will tell it. We don't derive our worth or we don't derive our value by what we do. We are not valuable because of the way we look. We are not, you know, worthy because of what we possess or what we own or what we do not own. Our value is is not about the skills that we have or that we don't have. Our value comes from the creator. The creator who said, I made you male and female and be fruitful, and multiply. And it was very good, God says. So then because all people are made, uh, that are made in the image of God are, respect, uh, are worthy of respect and honor, and again, just a couple very basic things, uh, one of them is that because of that, we uh, should never, uh, a life should never be taken by murder. A life should never be cut short um, by murder. And you see that real specifically in Genesis 9, verse 6. It ties the image of God to the reason that, that murder should never take place. And then, of course, in the Ten Commandments and many other places, we just have the commands, you shall not murder. Now, Jesus comes along and he does what he often does. He takes things from here to here. And Jesus says, well, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say, you shouldn't even be angry at a person. Or you've heard it said you should not murder, but I say don't, don't you know, belittle or, or call a name to a person. I love what the Apostle James does with this concept. He says it like this. He says it's just, it doesn't make sense to him that a person would praise God with their mouth. So James is talking about how we use our, our mouth and our words and our tongue. And he says it doesn't make sense that people would praise God with their tongues like we just did, standing up and singing these songs to God. But he says it doesn't make sense to praise God with your mouth, but then to go out and curse someone that God made in his image. So James says, because people are in the image of God, you don't curse them. You don't belittle them. You don't make fun of them because God made them. They may be different from you, but God made them and and God doesn't make junk. He made what he designed. So that's kind of the foundation level about all these things. All life is valuable because it is in the image of God. 
Now that brings us to one of the key questions or one of the key topics on this issue, which is if life is so valuable, right? Because that's really what this is all about. Life is valuable. But if life is so valuable, when does life actually begin? And again, here my goal is really to say what the scripture says on these issues. But what we see is that the consistent teaching of the Bible, really from beginning to end, uh, when it speaks on this issue, is that life begins inside the mother's womb. Life begins in the mother's womb. Now, of course, this has been one of the political hot-button issues of the last 50 years in our nation, as people have argued that to protect and care for the preborn child will infringe upon the rights of a woman. Now, in this culture that we live in, with this kind of worldview that we have, what we see, the current worldview, is that personal rights are more important than what we would say is right and wrong, or the way you determine, ultimately determine right and wrong is based on uh, a person's rights. And so since 1973, when the Supreme Court decision of Roe v. Wade legalized abortion, uh, this debate has raged as one of the most heated and divisive issues in American politics. But here's the thing. In those 48 years where we've been talking about it and arguing about it back and forth, 62 million abortions have taken place in the United States alone. And if, in fact, what the Bible says is true, that life is valuable, and that life begins in the womb, is there a greater national tragedy than those 62 million lives? Because we are rightfully horrified to learn about and to think about the atrocities done and the the life taken of six million Jews and and other people during the Holocaust of of World War II. That's, that's, you know, terrible to think about. We grieve and we mourn for 600,000 lives in America, four million around the world that have been lost in recent times over the last 18 months um, related to COVID-19. But to think of 62 million Preborn children whose lives and potential were never given a chance is beyond comprehension. So Roe versus Wade essentially argues that a fetus is not viable as potential life. And so thus it doesn't have constitutional rights of its own. And it's obviously a, a, an in-depth argument and lots of things going on there. Um, so as I said, really what we want to do is look at what the Bible says on this. But before we jump into some of these texts, um, I want to give you just a little look at, at a, a video that includes some images of some of what is taking place inside that mother's womb. I always think it's so incredible just to see those images. By the way, um, I put the, the link to a TED Talk in your notes. I didn't have time to show it, but it's a, a much more scientific approach and just incredible the pictures that you see in that. But I want us to, to see that because, you know, it's fascinating that we have the ability to see with our own eyes and to understand in a much more scientific way than King David ever did when he wrote these words 3,000 years ago. Because um, David just sung it as a song. Uh, 
and it came out like this. Psalm 139, uh, beginning in verse 13, says it like this. It says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And the concept in the Bible that we see is long before we were ever conceived by our parents, God conceives of us and God sees us and knows us. And it uses the words of knitting together and forming together. God is doing his work. And that's one of the things that, that, that historic Christianity in the Bible has taught about life. But that's not the only place that we see uh, this position um, throughout the scripture. So for instance, in the law in Exodus chapter 21 and in other places as well, we see the concept that if a woman is pregnant and the, the woman is harmed and the, the, that unborn child is harmed, that the punishment is due for whatever harm comes even to that unborn cha- child. And that's a value that we see in the Old Testament law. I love the story of Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah chapter one, I really relate to Jeremiah because God calls Jeremiah to do something hard and to do something scary. He's got to go and speak on, on God's behalf and go to a people that are going to be kind of stubborn and hard. And, and Jeremiah does what most of us would do in that situation. He starts to make excuses. And I'm too young and I don't know what to say and I don't have enough wisdom and I don't know all this stuff. And God answers him by saying this. God answers him by saying, the word of the Lord came to me. And this is what the word of the Lord said to Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart and I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So in other words, um, no person can ever say I'm no good. No person can ever say I'm a mistake, right? No one can really say my life has no meaning. That doesn't mean sometimes we feel like that. But when you think this through, you can't say that your life doesn't have value and your life has no meaning because our meaning comes from how God created us and God doesn't make junk. God doesn't do mistakes and accidents. I love the way Mother Teresa talks about this. Mother Teresa, who devoted so much of her life caring for people that many would have just seen as throwaways or people of no no value. And Mother Teresa says it like this. She says, every child has been created for greater things, to love and to be loved. In the image of God, once a child is conceived, there is life, God's life, and that child has a right to live and to be cared for. So if you were here last week when we started talking about this We Still Believe concept, one of the things that we said is that we live in in interesting times. um, And one of the things that we live in is what's called the the information age, right? There's never been more information coming at us than ever before, um, 24-7, 365 days a year, lots of theories, lots of ideas, lots of different opinions always coming at us. You mix that together with kind of the dominant worldview of the day, which is, is relativism, which says that right and wrong, not that it's absent, but right and wrong is described or is defined kind of by the culture, by what the world says is right and wrong. And so we said when you take those two kind of worldviews and those kind of two ways that, that we live and think, that it's created a real void for truth because you have all these theories coming at you and it's hard to know, you know, what is, what is true, which is why we're, we're talking about this stuff. 
But the other thing that this has created, and it's so fascinating and so fascinating is not the right word. It's so troubling and and discouraging is as you mix these things together, another thing that it's created in our culture, especially targeted at young millennials and Gen X, teenagers that are coming up today, is all this information promoting what is called nihilism. Familiar with nihilism? Nihilism is basically a way of thinking that says this, life stinks and life is hard and I don't really matter and there's no meaning in life. And so who cares? Who cares what I do? It's all just a a waste anyways, including the implications of that as I can harm myself. I can harm another person. I can take my own life. Comes out of that despair that says life stinks. There is no meaning in life. And every person here this morning, and whether you are here in this auditorium or whether you are listening online or watching online, you need to know that God made you and God loves you and you are not an accident. You were not made wrong right? God didn't make a mistake with you. God didn't accidentally give you the wrong gender. God didn't accidentally give you the wrong skin color. God didn't say whoops and give you the wrong personality. God made you and he loves you. Now, especially young people, I get it. Man, there is a lot of noise coming at us. There are a lot of voices, strong voices, discouraging that, saying, oh no, you know, saying that, you know, that that, uh, that, that, that there's not that kind of value and that, that you know, you're not who you were created to be. But I beg you to hear not those voices that are coming at us, but to hear the voice of God's word that said, I made you. I know you. You are in my image and you didn't make a mistake. It may be hard. It may be confusing, but I am with you. And that's what we want to be about as a church as well. So before we move on from that, just one other scripture that I think is really important um, in this, in this uh, area, which is it's one of my favorites too. It happens when uh, Mary is actually pregnant with Jesus. And Mary is pregnant with Jesus at the same time that her relative Elizabeth is pregnant. Elizabeth goes on to give birth to a man by the name of John. He becomes John the Baptist. Um, but there's a time when Mary is pregnant and Elizabeth is pregnant and the two of them come together. And in Luke chapter one, this is what we read. It says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, before we need to move on, I just want to say one of the reasons that, that a preborn John would leap inside his mother's womb when he came near a preborn Jesus is because God's spirit somehow inspired that little unborn baby to understand that Jesus was to become the savior of the world and the pathway to forgiveness and the pathway to life once and for all. And this is significant because I know for a fact that many people here, many people who might watch this message online we'll hear this and one of the first emotions is going to be guilt. And one of the first emotions is going to be shame and sorrow and despair. And I I get that. And that is not the intention here. That is not our goal. That has never been our goal. The point is you need to hear loud and clear that God's love and grace and healing is available to every single one of us and it extends to you as well. You see, this church wants to be a culture of grace, have a culture of grace. This church wants to be a place where where you can find belonging and you are welcome here. But we want you to find the extraordinary healing and hope 
that comes from knowing and walking with God. And we want to do that and come alongside in any way that we can as we go through any sort of sorrow or heartbreak or trauma or difficulty because we've all faced some of those difficult things. Well, as we come to the kind of the end of that point, for far too many people out there, uh, when you have this discussion about God's value or God's value of life and um, what it means to be pro-life, the, the discussion kind of ends right there on the issue of abortion. But the reality is, is that many people who claim to be pro-life, maybe they vote pro-life, maybe they give to pro-life causes or ministries, and that is all uh, great and fine and good. But if I could be so bold as to say, that is hardly all that the Bible talks about when it talks about being pro-life and the value of life. You see, if Christians are going to say that we are truly pro-life, that means that we care about the unborn and the born. It means that we care about the unborn, but we also care about that mom. Because we see that not only is all life valuable and that it begins in the womb, but life is valuable from womb to tomb. From beginning to end, the Bible teaches us that life is valuable from beginning to end. It's not truly pro-life to say that we care about the unborn, but not about the struggling single mom. It's not truly pro-life to say we care about the unborn, but we don't care about the drug-addicted child. Or we don't care about the the child bouncing from foster home to foster home. You know, as I think about this issue and I think about this church, one of the things that I love so much about just being a part of this church family is the amazing way that so many of you crazy people have put this into practice. Because you don't only say that I value life, but you have put it out there and you've opened your hearts and you've opened your homes to adopt kids in or to foster kids in or to come alongside someone who's endured trauma or to come alongside someone who's struggling or suffering or doing the very best that they can. Because that's what God's people do, right? If we value life, we value the hard times in life as well. In fact, some of you might say, well, I love that our church has got such an active foster and uh, adoptive program here, and it's really amazing the love and support that is offered in that community here. But you say, "Uh, there's nothing that I can really do. I can't really be a part of that. I can't take in a foster kid, or I can't, you know, open my home or something like that. And we get that. That's not for everybody at all. If it's not your calling. It's not the right thing to do. Uh, But there's a program out there if you would like to be involved in making the difference in the life of a foster child in San Joaquin County, and the program is called CASA. It stands for Court-Appointed Court appointed what? Court appointed special advocate, special advocate. Um, And it's not a Christian organization. It's actually a court position um, where they look at the needs of foster kids. And as you look at the counties in California, San Joaquin County is the lowest, the lowest county when it comes to providing CASA for some of the, uh, a county that has some of the highest number of foster kids. The idea is that after you go through some training and go through the process, that you get matched up with the child and you come alongside as a mentor, as an advocate, as a friend. And you see the statistics of what comes for, for kids that, that are in and out of, of foster care, some of the, the, the struggles that, that can often be ahead for them. Uh, those are very real. But boy, do we see them decreased when they have more caring adults in their life, including uh, CASA. And uh, so we have some people from the CASA organization out here. Trinidad and Maria would love to talk with you about that. And before we move on from this point, let me just show you this quick little video about that. It's for everyone. For many, our first thought is looking out for our children. But who is looking out for foster children? We are. 
We are CASA, court-appointed special advocates. Our volunteers work one-on-one with foster children to make sure they are well-protected and get the services they need. Especially when times are tough, we all have to take responsibility for every child. Please support CASA during this critical time. You can be the difference in the life of a foster child. So there you go. And there's some information out there uh, about that. Hey, one other need that's just come up recently, it's kind of on the other side of working with children, um, but Cheryl Francis, who's a member of this church and runs Grace and Mercy uh, Charitable Foundation, uh, recently has took on the very big but really important responsibility of kind of a, a senior uh, shut-in meal delivery program. And so it's a huge amount. It's like 1,700 meals a week that are delivered to seniors shut-in right here in our city of of Lodi. And so it's a big task. My understanding is they do the meal preparation and delivery on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And if there was a a time once a week or every other week or whatever it would be that you could help care for another part of our most vulnerable in our community, our seniors, by preparing and delivering food, there's a place that you can sign up and we'll get you connected with Cheryl and Grace and Mercy. And I talked to some people that went and delivered the meals this week. They said it was amazing to spend that time um, with those precious seniors um, here in our community. But as I think about really one of the more, you know, pro-life passages in all of the Bible, it's a, a passage that I've just loved for years. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 says this, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. That's what it means to value life. Another consistent command that we see in the Old and the New Testament regarding God's special value of those that he places on the the vulnerable. And by the way, parents, this is a a great verse to teach your kids when they're very young. Deuteronomy 10.18, and you see this same sentiment a a dozen times throughout the scripture. Uh, Deuteronomy 10.18 says this, that God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the foreigner residing among you. You see, if we say that all life is valuable, that means that all life is valuable from womb to tomb. And that means the orphan and the widow. That means the immigrant that is living in our country that needs the support. So speaking uh, on this idea of speaking up on behalf of those who cannot speak for themselves, another one of my favorite things about this church is the number of teenagers that have devoted a time, a, a time out of their uh, year to serve at Camp Barnabas, Camp Barnabas back in Missouri. And it's not just teenagers, a lot of adults from the church go as well. But it's a place that our, our kids have gone back, our teenagers have gone back and um, helped serve in a camping ministry um, for people that have various special needs and disabilities. And one of the things that I love about Camp Barnabas is our, our teenagers go out there, and this is going to seem very basic, super elementary to you, but it's it's really important. One of the first things they do is they get all the teenagers together and they do a little orientation with them. And one of the first things they say is, we're so glad that you're here at Camp Barnabas, but you need to know that you are not here to serve special needs kids. And you are not here to serve special needs adults or special needs campers, whatever the week is. Because they say, here's what you're here to do. You're here to serve kids. You're here to serve people. You're here to serve Adults, campers, who are not going to be defined by their special need. They are going to be defined by the fact that they are a person made in the image of God and valuable to God. They may have some disabilities. They may have some special needs, but who doesn't, right? 
And so I love that our kids get out there and they hear that and see how valuable that that is. And that is a culture that needs to exist from every part of this church family, right? From the youngest to the oldest, we are all valuable. No matter what disability, no matter what struggle, no matter what issue you come through, we are all valuable. The Bible goes out of its way to say that that one person is not more important than the other. We need each other. We need each other and we need those people that have some struggle, you know, and have some disability to speak into our lives and teach us because we are all God's children made in his image. You see, I love what John chapter 10 says, and we'll kind of wrap up here. Um, Jesus says it like this. He says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it to its full. You see, the enemy has so many strategies to steal, to kill, to destroy some from inside the mother's womb, some throughout all sorts of issues that threaten to cheapen the dignity and degrade and redefine the worth of human life. And we are called to come alongside and speak up and live out that abundant life and to help others find that as well. Well, as I close, I want to just tell you uh, one uh, story about something that Jesus said, and I love it, and it's um, so important that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all decided to include uh, this thing that Jesus said in, in their accounts of Jesus's life. Maybe you're familiar with it or have heard of it before, but it's a time when there's some people that really despise Jesus, and they were out to get him, and so they decide that they're going to trap him, they're just going to trick him and see if they could turn kind of public opinion against him. And so they come to him, and they ask him the very difficult question, about taxes. And they say, hey, Jesus, should we pay our taxes to Caesar? And turns out taxes is kind of a hot button issue. And so it was back then too. And so they, they figure if Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay your taxes, that of course all the Roman authorities were gonna be upset. But if Jesus says, hey, you're supposed to pay your taxes, all the Jewish people who are getting gouged on their taxes, they weren't gonna be happy about it either. So what's Jesus gonna do? So they, Jesus says, well, well, bring me a coin. Does anyone have a coin? And they bring him a coin and he holds this coin up and he says, whose image is on this coin? And the Greek word that, that, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke use there is the word icon, icon for the word image. Actually, it's the same word that the Greek translation of the Hebrew in Genesis chapter one uses when it describes the way that we are made. We are made in God's image and God's likeness. We have God's icon on our life. And so they give the coin to Jesus and Jesus, they said, whose image on it? They said, Caesar's image is on it. And Jesus says this, give to Caesar what has Caesar's image on it. But then what else does he say? Give to God what's got God's image on it. Speaking of you and me, we are image bearers of God. And our life is never going to be more fulfilled, more meaningful, more in line with who and what God created us to do. Not only when we understand that, but we are a part of bringing that blessing to other. You see, the most abundant life will always be found in a life fully surrendered to him. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for uh, the truth of your word and a chance to just talk about these things. Thank you, Lord, that your word uh, instructs us. It's just these ancient truths that speak in such a powerful way and in such a modern way as well. So I pray, Lord, for myself and for my brothers and sisters. I pray for those that might be struggling, Lord, to, to think about these things. Maybe their life is filled with some hurt and and regret, and I pray that you would be a comforter and that you would bring grace and peace and people into their life and into our lives so that we can 
can journey on this together. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to know what it means that we are created in your image and to share that with others. So, Lord, we thank you for this. We commit ourselves to you. I thank you for this church family and the way that that we have understood and lived this out for generations. Help us, Lord, to do that more and more because we are yours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.